0: Washington, D.C., this is on the ground. As the January 6th Commission reveals details of an attempted coup by Donald Trump, a retired federal judge says that the real threat is the next coup being planned in plain sight.
1: They would attempt to overturn that 2024 election in the same way that they attempted to overturn the 2020 election but succeed in 2024 where they failed in 2020.
0: We speak to historian and author Gerald Horn about the hearings, and we also speak to on-the-ground contributor Chantel James about her critically acclaimed debut novel, None But the Righteous, set in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina.
2: The impact that it had on me was that Atlanta began to be flooded with refugees from the storm and people who had to flee their homes from the storm. So. I realized I was going to be telling the story of someone who found himself in this position.
0: And the Poor People's Campaign steps off in D.C. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, ground onthegroundshow.org. Voices of resistance from the nation's capital, I'm Esther Ivarum. Tens of thousands are expected to converge in D.C. on Saturday for the Moral March on Washington and to the polls, sponsored by the Poor People's Campaign and its 40 state coordinating committees, 200 mobilizing partners and many faith leaders from around the country. In a post titled Why We March, the campaign said, quote, we assemble and march on June 18th, 2022. Because any nation that ignores nearly half of its citizens is in a moral, economic, and political crisis. There were 140 million people who were poor or one emergency away from economic ruin before the pandemic. Since March 2020, while hundreds of thousands of people have died, millions are on the edge of hunger and eviction, and still without health care or living wages, billionaire wealth has grown by over $2 trillion. End quote. On Thursday, Aaron Scott, co-founder of Chaplains on the Harbor in Washington State, was among the participants in the campaign who spoke during a briefing for members of Congress. He spoke about how the lack of universal health care has devastated his family.
3: Nine years ago, I lost the most important man in my life, my grandfather. He was a veteran of the United States military who fell into a mental health crisis. It was easier for him to get a hold of a gun than it was for him to get the mental health care that he needed. I remember my grandma fighting with all different doctor's offices in the living room, desperately trying to get him in to get seen somewhere. And he died by suicide in the garage. My grandma found him, and I am here today to ask, where was the support from this government that my grandpa proudly served his whole life when he needed you. And I'm asking you to honor the memory of my grandparents, Leland and Ivy Scott, to honor poor and abandoned young people all over this country by making it possible for everyone in this country to get the health care we need, including mental health care.
0: The Moral March on Washington and to the polls is gathering Saturday, June 18th, at 9.30 a.m. at 3rd and Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest. The website is poorpeoplescampaign.org. And as the Poor People's Campaign mobilizes for its action this week, the Biden administration pledged an additional $1 billion in military aid to Ukraine bringing the total to more than $55 billion dedicated to that war. This issue of the war has split some organizations on the left away from the Poor People's Campaign, the leadership of which the Reverend William Barber referred to the military funding of Ukraine as a quote-unquote moral imperative. On Thursday, the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign and the Black Alliance for Peace held a press conference on the topic thinking beyond Ukraine, their war is not our war. These groups said that they are working to build a new coalition in the spirit of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous Riverside speech, Beyond Vietnam, a time to break the silence, where King took a bold stance against the Vietnam War, understanding that the United States was not only investing millions and millions of dollars to solve problems abroad that they had not solved at home, but additionally, that there was no genuine investment, honesty, or effort towards actually solving these problems stateside. During the press conference, I spoke to a friend of the show, Ajamu Baraka, national organizer for Black Alliance for Peace. I asked about this split and the need for a left popular front against the rise of the far right in this country.
4: It's a, it's a struggle, Esther, that basically to have a popular front, so-called popular front, you have to have a minimal program of unity of common agreement and what we are suggesting that at this critical moment that unity that common agreement has to be based on some real sharp clear radical politics if that doesn't exist there's, there's no real basis for any kind of popular front uh, it doesn't mean one has to be antagonistic it means that that basically we have to make a, a strategic determination of what is needed at a particular historical moment and so if a popular front is one in which the radical forces are junior partners and the people who are driving the politics are those individuals those organizations that get propped up by the enemy then it is it will be the, uh, contrary to our objective interests to enter into that kind of relationship we are all for building unity but unity has to be based on principles it has to be based on in essence the hegemony of a radical uh, program
0: The coalition is calling for a Poor People's Army Boot Camp near Philadelphia on August 12th through the 14th to teach people how to reclaim land, housing, food, culture, education, and a humane society. More information about that new coalition is at poorpeoplesarmy.com. And finally, in culture and media, the Gray Zone news website has broken two stories with leaked emails revealing how British journalist Paul Mason plan to wage all-out war on anti-imperialist and left-wing academics, activists, campaign groups, independent journalists, and media sites. A June 13, 2022 article by Kit Clarenberg says, quote, since the conflict in Ukraine erupted, Mason has aggressively assailed any prominent figure calling for a diplomatic resolution or opposing NATO escalation authoring columns advocating for government censorship of facts and viewpoints he perceives to be insufficiently anti-Kremlin and demanding quote-unquote state action against media personalities that oppose NATO expansion. More is at thegrayzone.com. And finally, the activists with DC action for Assange say they expect to hear Friday the 17th whether the UK government will decide to extradite journalist Julian Assange to the US as the US requests. If this occurs, the group will meet at the Department of Justice at 5 p.m. to call on Attorney General Merrick Garland to stop this process of punishing a journalist, to free Julian unconditionally and secure the First Amendment. They say anyone coming with a drum would be useful as Garland's office is on the second floor. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. On the Ground is a totally listener sponsored, supported show. If you have not already subscribed at Patreon, you can do so for as little as $3 a month or all at once at $33 for the whole year. And I know that the show is worth more than that to you. If you like the show, if you love the show, if you regularly check it out, if you rely on it, if, you know, it's a part of your soundtrack in any kind of way please support go to patreoncom forward slash on the ground show. And I would very much appreciate your support and it would mean so much to us at Patreon, com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can go to the show website, which you might go to anyway. If you reach the blog that way and you click on the donate now button or the, um, support donate button and you can see all ways to give.
1: I have written, as you said, Chairman Thompson, that today, almost two years after that fateful day in January 2021, that still Donald Trump and his allies and supporters are a clear and present danger to American democracy. That's not because of what happened on January 6th. It's because to this very day, the former president, his allies and supporters pledge that in the presidential election of 2024, If the former president or his anointed successor as the Republican Party presidential candidate were to lose that election, that they would Attempt to overturn that 2024 election in the same way that they attempted to overturn the 2020 election but succeed in 2024 where they failed in 2020. I don't speak those words lightly. I would have never spoken those words ever in my life except that that's what the former president and his allies are telling us. As I said in that New York Times op-ed, wherein I was speaking about the Electoral Count Act of 18. Eighty seven. The former President and his allies are executing that blueprint uh, for twenty twenty four in open and plain view of the American public. I repeat, I would have never uttered one single one of those words unless the former president and his allies were candidly and proudly speaking those exact words to America. Chairman, thank you for the opportunity to appear here today for these proceedings.
0: And that was retired Judge Michael Ludig testifying before the House January 6th Commission in the hearing held on Thursday, which was dedicated to examining the pressure that former President Donald J. Trump put on his Vice President, Mike Pence, to use the ceremony of counting the electoral ballots in an attempt to overturn the 2020 election. And now to discuss the latest in these hearings, I'm joined by On the Grounds Geopolitical Analyst Gerald Horn, Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston, and author of more than 40 books, including his latest, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow, and The Roots of U.S. Fascism. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. So. Today, I want to discuss these hearings so far of the House January 6th Commission. As I mentioned uh, on Thursday, the hearing focused on Trump's attempt to pressure Pence to use the ceremonial function of opening these electoral ballots to overturn the 2020 election. And there was this retired conservative judge, Michael Luddick, saying what I've actually heard you say many times in terms of talking about January 6th, that if nothing changes, January 6th was just a rehearsal for the next coup attempt. So I want to get your thoughts on what you've seen so far.
5: Well, certainly the way things are going now, January 6th was just a rehearsal, precisely that, because if the transgressors are not punished, that's sending a signal that it's okay to try again. But thus far, I think these hearings have been quite chilling particularly the words of Judge Luddick when he suggests that plotting for 2024, the presidential election, is already underway, the implication being that the last fair presidential election for the foreseeable future may have been in November 2020. And what I found also striking was that the witnesses kept making references, to how the way things were going in the United States of America, that these electoral and political disputes would be settled in the streets. And they kept making reference to, quote, revolution, unquote. I think they should have said counter-revolution, in which case, as the title of my most recent book suggests, I'm afraid that the right wing has considerable experience in that diabolical field. And I should also say that particularly chilling is that we already know that the right wing in this country, like the right wing post-U.S. Civil War, 1865 to 1876-77, they had a parliamentary wing in the 19th century. It was the Democratic Party in the 21st century. It's the Republican Party. And they have a paramilitary wing in the 19th century. It was the Ku Klux Klan. In the 21st century is the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, an array of others. All of that suggests that the right wing is well prepared to settle these disputes in the streets, which does not bode well, I'm afraid to say, for anti-fascism. What's happening, I think, is that the left, broadly speaking, has made too many ideological concessions to the right wing, starting with their acceptance of this idea that the founding of the United States was a great leap forward for humanity. But the base of the Republican Party, which is the Euro-American vote across class lines, which they win the majority of regularly and have done so for decades, up to and including 1991, when David Duke, a fascist and Klansman, ran for governor of Louisiana and 55% of the Euro-American vote across class lines voted for him. And I don't think that these ideological concessions have helped to wean away that many right-wingers to the progressive camp. And in any case, uh, what's particularly disturbing is that the United States today reminds me of what the U.S. pundits used to say about the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s when they suggested that the socialists in Yugoslavia had chased underground these ultra-nationalist passions that had now emerged in the 1990s. Now, I think that there has been a lot of ideological pushback, needless to say, against this idea that white supremacy was something to celebrate But at the same time, as noted, the left has made concessions. For example, we know (laughs) that part of the U.S. project was to seize land from Native Americans and turn it over to Europeans arriving fresh off the boat. And in a de facto sense, many in the neo-fascist coalition that is the base of the Republican Party, although it's not fashionable to say so, it's easy to infer that they prefer that system of naked white supremacy as opposed to what the United States supposedly is aspiring towards today. So I hate to sound this note of gloom and doom, but that's where these hearings leave me.
0: Well, when you were mentioning the you know seizing of land and, you know, it made me think about how you know, Trump was rightfully denounced for his comments about S-hole countries and, you know, obviously wanting people who come from Norway instead. But you notice that in this rush to embrace the, you know, US imperialism's drive in Ukraine, that the left, a lot of the so-called left is silent about how the Biden administration may not use those words, but by saying that 100,000. You know, Ukrainians have a carte blanche to come here when we're, you know, holding at bay, you know, (laughs) the hordes of, you know, black and brown people at the southern border. It's the same policy. It's just that he's not using that that word or that phrase to denigrate people. It's interesting you mentioned the left, but, you know, I've noticed with dismay, you know, so many people, commentators on the left, not really taking seriously the hearings or what happened leading up to January 6th. You know, I even heard George Galloway, the, you know, UK former parliamentarian, like poo-poo the hearing or what happened on January 6th as like no worse than any common English soccer riot. Right. Or uh, and it seems like people seem to be missing the point of a concerted effort being made to overturn the election and stage a coup. I mean, have you have you run into this this kind of dismissal dismissive attitude? By people on the so-called left?
5: I'm afraid that the answer is yes. In other words, I'm chagrined to say that uh, in January 2021, I was and still am part of a left-wing formation that will remain unnamed, that took that precise position that George Galloway took. They've interpreted the to-do about January 6th as so many Democratic Party talking points, And I decided not to leave this organization because I feel that they need watching for taking (laughs) such a position. And so uh, that's why I'm still there because I'm afraid of me. If they take that position, what else will they do? And so uh, I'm afraid to say that you're onto something.
0: Okay. Well, also, I think a lot of people will be curious about this reference made on Thursday to the, the electoral college. And, in 1887. I know on this show, we've certainly talked about the violence or reconstruction and the pivotal nature of the 1876 election when there were two uh, dueling sets of electors or uh, from South Carolina. And, you know, the the Confederates were uh, basically challenging the right of the what was a black majority in that state to be influential in the election and elect so many uh, anti slavery members of the Republican Party at that time? So it's kind of switched in terms of party <laughs> affiliation now. But I know about that. But what happened in 1887?
5: So what happens is that Congress, in its alleged wisdom, decides that following the contested and disputed election of 1876, and then very close elections in 1880 and 1884, that a law should be drawn up, which is the Electoral Count Act, which supposedly will resolve these kinds of disputes and minimize congressional involvement in electoral disputes. The problem is, as Judge Luttick might have said, that it was artfully written. It's written in a confusing fashion. And Mr. Trump's lawyers, including the now notorious John Eastman, was seeking to use that act in order to argue that Mr. Pence, the vice president, could, in a sense, declare Mr. Trump to be the victor, either by uh, sending electoral ballots back to states in seven different instances, more or less And so the problem is, is that the Republicans feel that they have something to lose if the Electoral Count Act is clarified. So it's going to be difficult to get the 60 votes in the U.S. Senate that would be needed to overcome and override a filibuster in order to clarify this act, which is one of the reasons why I think Judge Luttick was saying that fair presidential elections in the United States uh, might be a relic of history or something in the rearview mirror.
0: Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, I've been speaking to Professor Gerald Horn, our geopolitical analyst, author of more than 40 books, his latest, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. ground, On the Ground, show.org Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And now for a very special segment on On the Ground. For more than seven years, my time flies, listeners to On the Ground have heard reports from Chantel James, who first joined us as an intern while a graduate student at American University. But even after graduation and well into her professional life, she has stayed with us covering such diverse issues as Black Lives Matter, rallies against war, Israel apartheid, lots of programs produced by the Claudia Jones School, the exploitation of essential workers during the pandemic, environmental justice, and so many issues. But little known to our audience, Chantel continues to build her other stellar work as a writer and thinker and is now author of her debut novel, None But the Righteous, released to glowing reviews. It was named a Kirkus Most Anticipated Book of the Year and a Goodreads Most Anticipated Debut Novel of 2022. It follows 19-year-old Ham set adrift in his hometown of New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina. Hidden beneath his clothes, he wears his only valued possession, a pendant handed down from his foster mother, Miss Pearl. There's something about the pendant that has always gripped him, and the curiosity of it has grown into a kind of comfort. When Ham finally embarks on a fraught journey back home, he seeks the answer to a question he cannot face Is Miss Pearl still alive? Ham travels from Atlanta to rural Alabama and from one young woman to another as he evades the devastation of what awaits him in New Orleans. Catching sight of a freedom he's never known, he must reclaim his body and mind from a spirit who watches over him, guides him, and seizes possession of him. And some of that I took from the introduction to the book. So to tell us firsthand about her book and her journey as a writer is Chantel James. Welcome to the show, Chantel.
2: Thank you. It's great to be on in this capacity after having been on the other side for so long.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So I want to start by asking you... Just tell us about your what inspired you to choose the topic of the aftermath of Katrina. And I think it was Hurricane Rita that was right behind Katrina. It was like a one-two punch. But they literally wiped away so many of the Black communities in New Orleans.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, my first attraction to the story that I wanted to tell was actually just that I knew I wanted to tell a story about black Catholics because that's the community that I was raised in and I really kind of wanted to tell a story that came out of that. And so I felt that New Orleans would be a natural place to tell that kind of a story because that's where it comes from. In my family, my grandparents met as students at Xavier University, which is a Catholic HBCU. In New Orleans. And so once I knew I wanted to tell that story, I just kind of tried to use my imagination to look around to see whose story I could tell there. And I was in college living in Atlanta when Hurricane Katrina happened. And in my life, the impact that it had on me as a college student living in Atlanta was that Atlanta began to be flooded with refugees from the storm and people who had to flee their homes from the storm. So it was kind of thinking back on that, that it sort of came together that I realized I
0: was going to be telling the story of someone who found himself in this position. I think I mentioned to you before the show that I'm still haunted by the manner in which, you know, families were separated at that time. I just remember hearing reports about people just being put on planes, you know, Mm -hmm. as if they they were cattle or something that they didn't have family or any ties to community, any heritage in New Orleans that they were leaving behind. So tell me about the theme in the novel of being unsettled and the main character, Ham, which I mentioned, who is traveling and traveling also in his mind and spirit throughout the book.
2: Well, for me this idea within the novel of being unsettled comes first and foremost out of the narrator who's who is a, a spirit who's been displaced from his body and is essentially set to wandering around almost disoriented. And so, I think I really wanted to capture this idea of the of the spirit who's unsettled in that way. But also, I think we're all kind of looking for our homes and looking for the place where we're going to belong and looking for the people that we can feel like we belong to. And so in that way, until we find that, I think we're all a little bit unsettled. And the main character, Ham, is certainly someone for whom that's true.
0: Tell me more about the spirit and I'm really fascinated about the whole connection to black Catholicism, you know, tell us about the spirit. Is it, is it a spirit that you created or is it an actual person rooted in history or a spirit uh, connected to a person rooted in history? And I know in the book, based on the book that one reason why he is unsettled is because he, his body was actually dismembered. And I know last week you heard me interview Gerald Horn about Texas and his new book. And he talked about the horrific ways that Black men primarily were lynched in Texas with uh, the horrific uh, lynchings and boiling men alive in oil, which was very plentiful in Texas. And so you know, there's this line between that conversation and this one and the, the idea of how Black Catholics may uh, retrieve some of the history of the church and also this particular spirit that you're talking about.
2: Sure. Well, I would love to talk about St. Martin as, as a figure because, and I do want to clarify, he wasn't necessarily tortured to death, but as part of the process of creating relics. In the Catholic Church, a lot of times they'll rip apart the body after death and somebody will take a piece of the finger and somebody will take a piece of the skull and somebody will take a piece of the garment. And the altars of churches are actually built in some cases upon the fragments of these people's bodies who have lived. So Martin de Porres was an actual person who lived a long time ago He was a mulatto who was the son of a Spaniard and an enslaved African woman who lived in Lima, Peru. And he became a friar with the Dominicans. And he was known for his miraculous powers, which was part of what attracted me to him as someone who could tell this story. Your standard miraculous type healing the sick, being able to be in more than one place at once, these kinds of things were attested to him. And what's also interesting about St. Martin de Poors in the context of New Orleans is that within the system of syncretism, because a lot of times the practices of, of voodoo are veiled by the outward Christianity so within that system, a lot of times you will see St. Martin de Porres identified with the figure of Alegva or Papa Elegva, who's one of the Loa or the spirits who devotees go to with their intentions and their prayers and their concerns and things like that. So that was my attraction to telling the story of this figure, St. Martin de Porres. But I will say that although he is canonized within the Catholic Church, it's probably very clear, I hope it would be very clear to anyone reading, that I'm not necessarily coming from the perspective where, like, I'm trying to espouse church doctrine in an uncritical way or anything like that. I don't think this is a book that somebody who had that kind of Unquestioning allegiance to the institution of the church could have written, but I was more so interested in just the cultural aspects of how people actually live and embody this spirituality.
0: Absolutely, and you know, I guess in along the same vein, you know, your book interweaves in and out of this world of the uh, not only just the supernatural but the spiritual and. You already talked about how that relates to your upbringing as a Black Catholic, but tell us a little bit about why you employ the, the idea of possession.
2: I've always been compelled by the idea of, of possession because I think in some senses, I've never been fully convinced that we will ourselves. And I feel like we're always subject to higher forces that are working through us. And I wasn't really expecting this conversation to go there, but when I've had experiences of madness myself, a lot of times possession was a part of that, where I would have delusions that people I knew had become possessed by spirits or something like that. And so this idea of possession or this idea that higher forces or supernatural forces kind of work through us so that we can execute their wills has kind of been with me for a long time. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of been something that I've been working through for a really long time.
0: You know, I appreciate that uh, you sharing that. And, you know, before I move on to the kind of the more of the mechanics of writing, I wanted to say that when you clarify the fact that St. Martin wasn't tortured per se like a person is tortured here in you know the United States in the long you know grisly history of lynching but still the idea that the relics that pieces of that person's body might be used to build, the altar or as part of the church. You know, it reminds me of the pieces of the lynching victims being taken as trophies. Absolutely.
2: You know? and Absolutely. I was And even and it all goes back to even the idea of, you know, this grotesque idea of capturing a part of somebody's body who's been tortured to death in a lynching. It all goes back to the idea that you capture a part of someone's power by owning a a part of their flesh, you know?
0: Mm Hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, just, uh, just so amazing when you really start getting into real history and what underpins it. And it seems like more and more of this country wants to ignore that or, you know, not, not, not teach children really the real histories of things. I had a chance to uh, hear Chantel uh, read from the book uh, during her her book tour. Uh, She stopped at Sankofa Books right here in Washington, D.C., where she was interviewed by the award-winning poet uh, Nikki Finney and just uh, has gone on and just wowed audiences all around the country with this book. And so we are grateful, and and those of us listening to the show today, you know Chantelle in a whole different manner, um, uh, volunteering her time, countless hours. I remember us being out in Annapolis at a freezing, a freezing oh, yeah, January for this MLK event. I oh my it. God! So <laughs> just v- volunteering her time and energy to build the. Quality program that we've tried to build here at On the Ground as all volunteers. But we take our time three, four, or five times a year to raise money for the station. It's not for us. And I hope to the show to get to the point where I can offer Chantel something for all her time and hours. But I remember that freezing event out at Annapolis to for Black Lives Matter. Uh, another time when we covered the Pope the Pope's visit here to Washington, D.C., and the um, it was so early, you were like falling asleep out there, <laughs> um, out on the National Mall. But today we're here to honor her and recognize her work as a novelist. So we're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther and I'm in conversation with Chantel James, writer, editor, I think educator also, but we're talking about her as a debut novelist and her first novel, None But the Righteous, is has been critically acclaimed. And now, Chantel, uh, I want to shift gears a little bit and have you talk to us about writing the book. As I mentioned, the interview you did at Sankofa Books here in DC, I think you mentioned going to the library after work to work on your book. So talk to us about the process, you know, creating and maintaining the sparks that obviously exist throughout this book. And how much do you have to rely on inspiration versus discipline to get the results you want as a writer?
2: Okay, well, this is stuff that's fun to talk about, actually. Yeah, I have definitely been a user of the public libraries. I love the study rooms. They used to know me by face when I would walk up in there with my little reservation for my two-hour block in the study room. So that was something I utilized. Also, over the course of the long, long course of writing this book, I received a residency in Vermont. So I was writing for a month in like 11 degree weather (laughs) like just really trying to get out as much as I could while I had that time devoted but I'm the kind of person who throughout my my work as a writer I've had like a whole bunch of different setups for how I got it done so I have had the setup of you work a day job and and you figure out how you're gonna structure You're writing outside of that and around that and things like that. And I'll also add that because I really wanted to get the feel of the city, I knew that it was important for me to travel there and to spend some time there. Mm -hmm. So I did take a few trips to New Orleans. I stayed with friends I had there just in order to get a a really good sense of it aesthetically. Mm-hmm. Um, to tell the kind of
0: story I wanted to tell. So maybe this is kind of a selfish question, but I was wondering about the impact that reporting on different stories and I think being introduced to different subjects or f- delving more deeply into certain subjects dealing with the our world we live in, whether locally, nationally, or internationally, if it had any impact on being inspired to write the book or or thinking about different aspects of the book?
2: Well, I do think that like a lot of the topics I've covered on On the Ground have just kind of gone into my memory banks and maybe have been influencing me in ways I can't necessarily put a finger on. Mm-hmm. But I also think that just like having the opportunity to work in the medium of sound as an audio reporter, has been very useful for me as a writer because you really get to know and get a feel for things like the rhythm and the cadence of speech. Hmm. And I think that's really important for my writing. The ways that you learn how to ask questions, just like you're doing for me now that I have to do when I'm in the field interviewing, influences the way that you think when you are approaching your creative writing. So I think those are some of the ways that On the Ground has impacted my writing. But I would say that the, the work I've done for On the Ground and the fiction I've written are both just kind of very different ways for me to explore my curiosities and mm-hmm. also just like give myself a sense of power because you can feel very powerless in this world with all the injustice that there is out there. And when I'm able to give people a platform who are really out there doing the work by featuring them on, on the ground, that does give me that sense of power. And I think in a similar way, when you actually have the ability to create a world, to create characters and things like that, that also gives you a sense of power over your circumstances because I'm in a lot of positions in my life where I'm, I feel like a pretty powerless person. Hmm. So you just, I think that's one of my ways of coping with it and saying to myself, you know, I do have some kind of a power over
0: circumstances. And agency, just the ability. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the ability to, to make change. And, you know, hearing you say that, it just reminds me of, you know, the power of word, the power of voice. And it's something very precious to hold on to. I think that, you know, in my darkest days when I also feel, you know, I'm, I'm up till five in the morning or six in the morning. And I'm like, you know, why am I torturing myself doing this show? <laughs> but I think it's because I mean, um, you
2: do work very hard on
0: the or, or, if I, or if I don't get to sleep at all. Right. And I'm sending it right right before it's, it's finishing right before I go to air. It's because of what you said. It's very important to have a voice. It's very important for us to, to have agency, to seize our power in this world and to do whatever we can to make change and to, to make the world better for not only us and our families and community, but for everybody, people we've never met who we know we have a kinship with because they are fellow human beings, you know? And so, you know, I appreciate that. I appreciate what you're saying and I appreciate the work that you, you do here on the show and not only on the show, but in this tremendous debut novel. And so finally, as we wrap up, I want you to think about, you know, if there's anything that, you know, you else you would like to say about the process of publishing this novel and I don't know the journey so far as a writer.
2: If you know, it's your goal you just got to keep going mm-hmm. because there I've had a lot of disappointments across the journey of getting this book published and the publishing industry is pretty hard. But if you know that that's your goal, that's what you have to hold on to.
0: Well, that is the product or the end result of perseverance. And as you said, believing in your story and getting your your story out there. Okay. So I want to thank you so much, Chantel, for joining me for this special interview. Uh, yeah, it was
2: a pleasure. I'm I'm really happy that you wanted to talk to me.
0: Oh, absolutely. And
2: I mean, I always have admired your you you as an interviewer when whether you're speaking to Professor Gerald Horn or whoever else you may be speaking to. So I knew I had to come with my A game because. You, you. When you said you were going to ask me a softball question, I knew there was no way that was happening because um, <laughs> because your well. questions are always very um, thoughtful and incisive.
0: <laughs> well, thank you, and uh, I, I had to definitely make sure that they were good questions for such a good book. Thank you again, Chantel. Okay, thanks, Esther. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, ground OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can also let us know you like On the Ground on Facebook, Twitter, or Patreon.com at OnTheGroundShow. And I post links to the show on my Instagram page, which is Esther underscore Averam, E-S-T-H-E-R underscore I-V-E-R-E-M. And our podcast On the Ground with Esther Avaram is on all your podcast platforms. The new podcast, our social media pages and the website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we play this hour included chant by Robert Glasper, Cloud Blue by Isaya Rusan, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.
6: The theme. I didn't mean to take the volume, sweet time. I'll give it right back to you. Oh, boy,